На трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона Разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. It's been a particularly busy week this week in Russian football. And thus, because of that, we're not going to do our usual sort of podcast where we review the games, have a look at what's happening, what's coming up, but we're going to have a little bit more of a topical one in which we cover the European games involving Russian clubs in midweek. Take a little quick look, a little bit of a detour and look at the 2022 World Cup playoffs, which took place on Friday, Friday the 26th of November. And then finish off with some analysis of Ralph Rangnick's uh, set-to-be-announced-soon move from Lokomotiv to Manchester United. To quickly start, before we do get into European matches, I would like to go through some of the results from last week, because it was a very entertaining weekend in, in Russian football. Unfortunately, we don't quite have time to look through the results too often, but Zenit beat Nizhny 5-1. Uh, he had a very pulsating game between Krasnodar and Spartak, where Krasnodar finally got back into winning ways, defeating Spartak 2-1. Uh, the total opposite in Moscow was CSK Siska hosted Himki in a very boring 0-0 draw. Uh, Akhmats defeated Loco 2-1 away from home. Dinamo stuck five past Arsenal and absolutely ran riot, particularly in the first half with a really nice performance. Uh, Rubin got a little bit of a surprising result potentially away to Sochi winning 2-1 and kind of halting their chase to try and defeat Zenit at the top of the league. Uh, as we speak, Ural and Sochi this weekend are currently drawing 0-0. Uh, Ural again with some really exciting youngsters, uh, Ramazan Gajimuradov and Luka Gagnitsha both starting in midfield. Uh, unfortunately, Eric McFalvey is up front with his Zimmer frame again. But... We will now move straight into the European games. And to do so, I forgot to introduce both of you, getting too wrapped up in the in the fixtures from last week. But we are joined, as always, by David. Yo. And Richard. Hey, guys. How are we going? So Richard's back from a couple of weeks off. He's been out from injury. Uh, unfortunately, due to the lateness, there was no substitutions that we could get in time for him. But Richard's great to have you back. Um we were going to get straight into Zenit's game in on Tuesday, away to Malmo. Uh, this basically decided who would be getting through to the Europa League, barring any sort of miraculous result from either side in the last round of fixtures. But all Zenit had to do was avoid defeat, uh, courtesy of their victory against Malmo at home in the second game week earlier on in the in the group stages and Richard it looked like for a, a very very long time in the match that they weren't going to do that yeah this was almost um the first half of the game especially this was almost like being transported back in time a year um you know to the campaign in the last champ in last year in the Champions League um first half I thought Zenit were really poor I, I didn't think they played well um Malmo Went in at half time deservedly with a one 0 lead. Um, just generally, yeah, I thought, I thought I thought the conditions should have suited Zenit really because if you think about it, um, you know Malmo had to win this game to guarantee any kind of European football. Just to be have a chance of any kind of European football after Christmas, they had to win this game. So you know they obviously came out on the front foot and attacked, and I thought that would work to Zenit's advantage because there'd be more space. So when Zenit get the ball, they could you know pass between the lines quicker and open them up and score. So I thought it, it would work to Zenit's advantage. But first half, I thought, yeah, it was really sloppy from them. They gave the ball away quite a bit. Um, I actually think as well, it could have been worse. They they had, Marble, I think, had a decent shout for a penalty. Um, the big striker, Cholak, I did see, uh, was it Lovren? He had his arms around him in the penalty box. Now, you always take a risk when you do that, I find. Um, I thought, you know, some refs might have given it, but, you know, they didn't. But even even nonetheless, Malmo, I thought, deserved to be ahead at the break. Uh, second half, Zenit were better. And on the on the overall, if you analyse the whole game, I think Zenit did deserve a point. They had more chances than Malmo. I think Malmo scored with their only shot on target. But again, yeah, the late penalty that, that Zenit got was the second in the game. I'd say it was... I, I don't actually think the second penalty was a penalty. But then again, conversely, you could say 
the um, the penalty that Juventus got on match day four against Zanit when Chiesa, let's just say, went down very, very easily in the penalty box was not a penalty. So you could argue that Zenit got a bit of the rub of the green there, which they didn't get two weeks earlier, two, three weeks earlier. Um, but yeah, it's it was not, not a great performance. Um, and this is probably feeding on to, let's just say, a worrying stat. Um, since Sergei Simat t- took charge of Zenit in, at the start of the 2018-19 season, he's yet to win away from home in European competition. And um, these are all the sides that Zenit have played in Europe since the match took charge. Dinamo Minsk, Mould, um, Bordeaux, Slavia Prague, um, Copenhagen, Lyon, Leipzig, uh, Benfica, Dortmund, Lazio, Bruges, Chelsea, Juventus and Malmo. Now, out of all those 12 teams, I think, or 14 teams, you'd probably say Malmo are one of the three or four, amongst the three or four weakest, if you look on paper and reputation of league. So, you know, you can, you can forgive away from home against the likes of Chelsea or Juventus not winning, but not winning away at Malmo is, as you say, it's a bit concerning for what's probably going to come after, after the winter break, because obviously, you know, they're going to be in the round of 32 in the Europa League and they're going to get a decent side. You know, we've seen in the last couple of match days in the Champions League that some good sides are going to drop into the Europa League post-Christmas. So Zenit are going to have to step it up. You know, we, we need to see the performances again from when they played against the likes of um, when they played against the likes of Chelsea and Chelsea at Stamford Bridge earlier this season. We need to see, see those kind of battling displays away from home because, yeah, that, that performance against Malmo, I thought, especially in the first half, was a little bit worrying. Um, but, you know, they pulled it together and got the point that they needed. I'm just so thankful that they did because you know, I didn't want it to go to the last match day because you just literally never know. But, um, yeah, they can relax a little bit now. Let's just get the Chelsea game out of the way and see what, what they get in the um, Europa League uh, playoff draw. Um, so, yeah, um, got away with it a little bit, but they're through <laughs> and that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, certainly. it's. Uh, I think we've mentioned before ourselves that it was a very difficult draw for them. Um, it's very difficult, obviously, with Chelsea and Juventus in there, but I do believe that Zenit being lower seeded, not immediately going into pot one, is potentially a better thing for them, um, which may sound a little bit like an antithesis of the reasoning of why you would be want to be first seeds. But every time Zenit have been first seeds, it's been a very even group. And every single team has looked at Zenit and played and, and been sort of dro- droven, driven on by the fact that Oh, Zenit are the one that everybody wanted in pot one. Whereas because you've got now in pot three, because you've got Juventus in there, because you've got Chelsea in there, it's the fourth group, the fourth pot is more often than not minnows. So you know that Juve and Chelsea are very, very unlikely going to drop points against Malmo. So it's making Zenit's job for progression into the Europa League easier. That might not want to be what Zenit fans hear because Zenit, the size of the club, how rich they are, the pres- pre- recent prestige they've had. So you would like to, s- to think that they can get through the knockout stages of the Champions League, not the Europa League. But if the last couple of years are anything to go by, then certainly not. Uh, there's some bizarre comments since the game I've, I've noticed in the Russian press. It was uh, the famous commentator, Gennady Orlov. He basically spoke of his dissatisfaction with the criticism that Zenit received um, he claims that the penalty in favour of Zenit was the good decision uh, both of which um, he said this is not Soviet football, there is a letter of the law and we must adhere to it they claim, they as in those in the media that Semak is a coward he himself understands they think this but he's a champion of the country three times and it basically goes on this very bizarre rant that's very much in defence of Zenit. Um, generally, people's criticisms were of the the profligacy in front of goal, the just poor poor game management, good poor game plan against what is a substantially worse side than themselves. Um, David, do you think that the criticism was a little bit harsh on Zenit, or warranted considering? You look at that performance and then compare it to ones earlier when there were minutes away from getting something against Juve, very respectable game in Chelsea and London. You know, they got the job done. You know, it might not have been pretty by the sounds of it. Um, 
And even if they had lost, it would still have been you know, not the best of uh, chances for Lamb to go through. We knew we knew that going there, they basically were fine, uh, no matter what the result. Obviously, they, they scraped it with a last-minute dodgy pen. Um, so, I, I don't know. I mean, you can criticise, but they, they did what they needed to do. They're through. Um, and now they can go into the last game against uh, Chelsea, relatively uh, you know, comfort comfortable. I was going to say comfort free, but that's the complete opposite. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they can they can take it easy now, and uh, yeah. So I'm I'm not sure. I mean, you know, ideally you'd you'd have wanted something a bit more um, conclusive. You know, the, the first leg against Malmo, the home fixture, they had a Malmo had a red card, which uh, sort of tied things up for them. But Zenit, up to that point, had been largely the better side. Uh, obviously, every time going away from home is difficult, um, and obviously Malmo were just up for it on on that particular occasion. Zenit um, were missing Asmoon, so not completely at full strength. And uh, you know, we we know how good him and Zuber are together. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, a big issue to to complain about it at this point. Yeah, I think as often is the case in these situations, the middle ground is usually the safest place to be. Where granted, they have qualified for the next round uh, for winter uh, football after winter in Europe. Um, they went there and job done. They didn't lose, but. I think the criticism on the performance is fair. Zenit should be far outperforming Malmo, and especially in direct comparison to the other games in the group. But I just find these sort of comments from Orlov and others like him very bizarre. It's it's almost like, you're, no, you're not allowed to criticise people because that's my job. It, it, it's just so hypocritical. It's it's ridiculous. Richard? Yeah, just, just in general about... Um... The, the criticism, I think the problem Zenit kind of suffer for and suffer from in a way really is because at the minute they are the, the dominant side in in Russian football. It's almost doing a bit of a, an RB Salzburg kind of situation like they are in Austria, aren't they? You know they're going to be judged on their performances in Europe, not just on their performances domestically. Um, and yeah, I, I mean what's coming in a couple of years' time, we know with the coefficient drop that soon the champions of Russia and you assume Zenit are going to be champions of Russia in the next few years and things like that eventually the Russian champions are not going to get automatic qualification for the group stages of Champions League. They're going to go, they're going to drop down into the... They have to go through the Champions path for qualifying, aren't they? So Zenit in the Champions path are probably going to come against more sides like Malmo to qualify for the group stages of the Champions League. So I think, yeah, the, the, it's it's not the away games against the likes of Juve and Chelsea, which are a problem because, you know, if you go there, you put in a respectable performance like they did against Chelsea, you know, look a much better side than what they did in past Champions League seasons, then that's good. But it's the worrying thing is is the, this away form against your Copenhagen's, your Dinamo Minsk's, your Molders. I mean, except the first couple of the first couple of the first season in Europe when they played against Dinamo Minsk and Molder, that was not Samak's squad. Obviously now we know that this is Samak's squad. So I think some of the criticism is fair. Um probably <laughs> A little bit overboard, maybe some of it, but like I said, they job done. But I think some of the criticism is fair. So, so if we do move on from Zenit now, I think it's time to focus on. I've also I've just had a little bit of PTSD because I've just realised that Ola Tyvenen plays for Malmo, and um, he's been out injured since May. But that's a little bit of. Um, Sunderland Premier League era PTSD because Ola Tyvenen was absolutely horrific. <laughs> but if we do move on to the <laughs> biggest result of the midweek, and that was Spartak's 2-1 win over Napoli at, at the Otkritia. Uh, they went ahead with two early goals from Alexander Sobolev, a three-minute penalty, and then a goal just before the half-hour half mark went into the break 2-0 up. Uh, they did concede a goal on the hour mark from Elif Elmas, but held off a very tense <laughs> and frankly very difficult to watch second half uh, with a pretty excellent defensive rearguard performance. I thought 
Obviously, Sobolev was excellent with his two goals. Victor Moses had a really nice game on the right until he went off with injury late on. But who impressed me the most? Probably um, Nilo Yarov in midfield, again, dictating play against a very competent opponent in Zielinski and Lobotka in the first half, and then just kept things tight, kept things ticking over in the second. And actually, apart from, obviously, Alexander Selikov, who continues his resurgence, I thought he was man of the match, aside from Sobolev. But Maximiliano Corfrier, again, having a very solid performance. Um, his job is more limited. He's not expected to carry the ball out of defence, like you would see that was Maisie run some Gijo. But really solid defensively, and since he's came back in the fold for Eskarsov on that right-hand side in Europe, uh, Spartak's last two performances have been excellent from a defensive perspective. David, you watched all of Spartak Napoli. Was there anyone who in particular stood out for you? And this was, for me, very much what we were sold on Vittoria before he signed. Uh, I mean, I'm in, I'm in agreement. I think Selikov, particularly in the first half, Selikov was unbelievable. He made at least three or four um, like ridiculous saves. There was one from uh, the Napoli number seven. I, I don't know who it is. It might that might be Elmas actually with the long hair. Um, where <laughs> I don't know how he had such a strong arm, but he just stuck his arm out and it just stayed solid at full extension. I like, just blocked this shot and the ball bounced a good distance away. It was, uh, you know, and that was a point blank. You know, it was an unbelievable stop. There were many others in the first half. He was, he was great. Um, you know, we, well, you know, we're not going to be surprised if he keeps the number one spot for the rest of the year now, um, you know, until the end of the, until the winter break comes in. Uh, Maximenko, I'm sure we'll, we'll have to deal with sitting on the bench, um, but he deserves it and, you know, we, we we have to think back to Selikov was once, you know, one of the most promising goalkeepers in Russia when he was coming through for Amkar and he got his uh, move to Spartak. Um, and I don't think he was ever dropped because of form particularly, but mainly just had his career curtailed due to a series of terrible injuries. Just can't, he couldn't seem to get a break. So we have to hope that he can uh, keep, keep fit because... Uh, we know on his day how good a goalkeeper he can be, and it's. I think we've done it a number of times. You know the depth of quality of Russian goalkeeping. Um, you know he, there's so many goalkeepers who are of a good standard in Russia, and particularly as just shot stoppers. Like uh, I think it's all the ice hockey they had when they were younger. Um, like they might not be all good. They might not be the best at all this other stuff to do with goalkeeping. Like Maximenko's weak point is you know coming for balls from corners and stuff like that but when it comes to the shot stopping a lot of goalkeepers you know i'm just I'm watching pomazun here for ural uh, against sochi who are playing right now and even he in the first half here has made an unbelievable reaction stop um and he's a guy who you know i'm sure will go in and place uh i can fear but getting back to spartak um uh, yeah Selikov, great and we are you know i've been heaping praise on him recently i, I really think um, he is a player who could, can go and play abroad. I think his style is some of the most non-Russian out of any Russian player. Like he's a player who would easily slot in in a, a Spanish team or you know just somewhere in Europe. Like his style is very translatable um, across teams in terms of how he plays in that midfield. And I think his ability is just um, growing by the day at the moment. You know. Um, so yeah, those two were very good. Sort of lifted a good job. Um, yeah, it was just a solid performance um, all round for the most part. Um, you know, I, I could see that they were going to be limiting Napoli to not the best of chances. Um, Hanny was having kittens in a in a chat that we had, <laughs> and I put out a tweet in the first half when they went to in luck saying, "Wow, they're, they're actually going to get a win." And he was begging me all game to delete it because he thought I was going to jinx it. Um, and eventually I caved and deleted it for him because I, I think it was just to calm him down, uh, which I, I never do. I was, you know, I was, fir- I was firmly confident that they were going to hold out uh, because I didn't think they were letting Napoli create clear cut chances often. Napoli were having all the ball, but it wasn't necessarily always 
big chances. The only big chance he had was the goal, which was, you know, was essentially a tap in at the back post from a from a cross. But aside from that, they they didn't really test Selikov greatly in the second half, I don't think. Um, despite having the lion's share of the play. So, uh, yeah, an excellent performance and the group is wide open, you know. Um, uh, Hanu, again, I'm going to reference something that Hanu done on a piece of paper, very retro. He had written down all 27 scenarios uh, for the remaining fixtures in the group and uh, to this, to decipher what the chances are that Spartak might still go out. Um, and I, I believe now that Leicester have beat uh, Legia, um, there are nine scenarios remaining in fixtures, and two of those will see Spartak finish fourth. Um, so they've got a, a seven in nine chance of going through in one of the top three positions, and a two in nine chance of going out, I believe. So fingers crossed, but at, at excellent points, you know, uh, I think there's the Spartak Twitter feed put out Napoli have lost once in La Ligue uh, all year or something like that. And but Spartak could beat them twice in Europe, so it's it's massively impressive. Yeah, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, that was going to be my my next point is getting on to Napoli themselves. Now, obviously, on the night they were missing quite a range of big name players. I mean, Insigne, Osimhen, Politano, Anguissa. So these are some serious first team players that they were were out, but even against that and missing those players. Their loss looked mundane. Spalletti was furious. He, <clears throat> beforehand, I think it was actually after the last game when Spartak won in, in Naples, he, he said something, like he, was, he was responding to be like, uh, um, how will they react? And he was like, oh, we will see in Moscow, like kind of like firing his players up, like we're going to go there and beat them there. And then I think that's kind of why he <laughs> refused to shake Rui Vittoria's hand at the end, which is Probably my favourite gif of the entirety of like the last two years in Russian football. Um, it's it's definitely I haven't even done the image yet. I haven't created the the image the header image for the podcast, but it's uh, without a shadow of a doubt it's going to be Rui Vittoria shaking his head. Um, it's 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 brilliant. I can kind of understand why Spalletti did that because he's a furious that they've lost and b he's made himself look like an idiot after what he said last time. But regardless of who was missing for them. Spartak can only play the 11 that's against them. And they were really, really good. Um, it, it was weird because it, for most of the time in Europe, they played a quite distinctive back three. This kind of looked like it was morphing between a three and a 4-4-2, four, four, uh, which is very difficult to do. And it's quite risky because you're playing a very talented side, even with those players missing. And it, requires real strong communication uh, levels between the players and energy levels as well to consistently shift positions like that um the altern- alternation of the 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 pivot was really nice and i think that was probably my favorite part of the entire performance was just the maturity of umyarov litvinov and ignatov in that midfield to play the way that they did to dictate in the first half to know when to run to know the maturity of the three of them as a trio to know how to control Napoli in second half especially. Yes, Spartak did give away a lot of possession. They did give away a lot of territory. But like you said, David, I mean, Selikov was called upon in the second half. But very few clear-cut chances. It was actually in the first half when Napoli, when Spartak were 1-2-0 or up that Napoli had their best chances of the game, apart from the goal, which was... Uh, a given. Um, it was really, really nice performance from them too, and it was nice to see Quincy Promise playing better again because I think he's been pretty poor for for quite some time now. Um, not not being the greatest of returns so far, to be to be quite frank, but very impressed by the performance and the different levels of how they are showing it. Um, I just worry that under Spartak. Uh, under Vittoria, sorry, Spartak are not very stable. I would like to see them stabilise as a side. And this has just been something that's plagued Spartak for some time since Carrera, where they change formations so often and and change personnel very often. Obviously, they can't really change personnel now because there's a, a cavalcade of injuries. But they can 
really inconsistent. Um, dreadful a few weeks ago. Awful against Zenit in the 7-1. Then go back to draw with Leicester. Real poor game at the weekend against Krasnodar, in which Krasnodar pretty much dominated. And then again here, real nice performance. So I think it's potentially something to get used to that you're going to have so many youngsters in and around the squad. But to quickly finish on Spartak, David, you've been keeping an eye on some of the Spartak 2 players. And of course, Spartak 2 are currently drawing 1-1 in the L with Tekstilchik. Um, Vladislav Shitov, Denis Markov and Daniel Denisov were all on the bench midweek. Now, if it wasn't for the injuries to Hendricks, Maslov, Zobnin, Ponsa, uh, Melkadza even, they wouldn't be on the bench. But it does seem like there's quite a nice little crop of youngsters coming through at Spartak, including the Shitov brothers that you've mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, we've seen, as you say, yeah, Denisov, Shitov recently getting on the bench the first time. We talked about him, the under-19 squad. Uh, Melnikov's been on the bench a few times in the league as well, um, all from the Spartak 2 team. I remember at the start of the year, Voropayev was training with the team because he's a left-back and Spartak were looking for a left-back, um, especially a Russian one. But obviously, he's ended up dropping back down. Um, to just mentioning that game, I, I saw that Tekstilchik, scored an equaliser and then hit the player who scored was immediately sent off so i had a quick look as to why he got sent off uh and you know where the player puts their shirt over their face to celebrate he got a second yellow for that which i didn't know was like i thought you could get a yellow for taking your shirt off entirely but just for putting it over his head he got a second hmm. yellow which i thought was very harsh i don't know if it's in the rules or not um but yeah, there's a there's a nice group. Spartak two having a much better season uh, than last season, where they were very close uh, to being relegated. Um, they're, they're comfortably in mid table at the moment, and uh, they have games one week where they be where they play ridiculously well, and then another week where they they don't play so well. But uh, it's a big improvement. Um, the sheets of twins, obviously, two two different players. You got Vlad Sheetov, who's, who's a striker. Um, He's quite clinical, uh, off, the, off the last shoulder sort of player. Reminds me a little bit of like a young Ivan Ignatiev, how he used to play when he was playing at these sort of levels. Uh, and then Vlad, uh, Vitaly Shitov is a winger who, he has the most dribbles in the Feniel of the season. He attempts like 14 a game or something uh, ridiculous like that. Um, obviously, we, last year we had Organesian and Marketesov coming through and they both um, appeared for the senior side at one point or another. They both uh, sort of either missed that, missed their chance to fully get into that team. Um, you know, they're still young; they're still only both twenty. Um, but they, maybe they've missed that boat um, potentially. Uh, they're the sort of players like like a Solmarad Bukayev, who's going to maybe go to a mid-range RPL team uh, yeah. and and do well there. Um, uh, but I've been impressed recently with Konstantin Shiltsov, who. Um, I remember he was in amongst the Spartak first team a couple of years ago when Tedesco was involved. Um, but he's still uh, only 19 and he's been playing quite well for the, for the second team of played. So yeah, there's a nice group there coming through. Um, you know, it's Spartak. They're always going to have talented players. You know, they're, they're the biggest club in Russia. They're going to have, a sp- and the biggest club in Moscow. So they're always going to have you know, their chance to have the best pick of the players. So it's just a case of them nurturing. But in recent years, we've seen a good lot coming through. So it's a, it's a nice nice trend they've got going on right now. Yeah, I remember Chiltsov when he made the bench uh, last year, I think it was, towards the end of the year against Arsenal Tula when yeah. when um, Zikia was injured. And he, I think he only he, he did return to the bench, but he was injured before that. And uh, Kutupov started and scored a ridiculous own goal and injured himself and while mm-hmm. doing so. Uh, that was, I think, Shiltsov was on the bench. I'm sure Litvinov made his debut. Yeah, I, I think Shiltsov maybe even played like two minutes at the end of one match. Uh, yeah, well, it was. If I recall, a Gapanov played. It was. I mean, no, it was when Tedesco was also willing. I mean, Spartak. To be fair, the, their success rate at getting players from these two team to the first regularly is not the greatest uh, as you would expect because it's harder for players to come through with higher level teams but they do consistently one of the things that Spartak do and I'm not I don't really 
you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm not sitting praising Spartak too often because it just annoys me how the club's being run. But to their credit, they are very good at providing a pathway to the first team, even if it is just temporarily. And even if it is just allowing the younger players to mix with the first team, to understand men's football, to get experience of training with the first team. And one of the reasons for that, and is why I've always been a big proponent of why elsewhere should do it, is the unlimited substitutes on the bench. And it's a great idea to get the youngsters into the squad. I mean, I've just got that game up there as I've been talking. And Timo Akmerzen was even called up to the bench that game in goal uh, alongside Artyom Rebrov. It was when Maxi was injured, so Selikov started. Akmerzen's never been seen in the first team since, but that ex- he's 24 now, I think. He's, he's, he's not going to stay at Spartak much longer. But he, he that, that experience was would have been vital for him, vital for his understanding of men's football. And that is one of the good things in Russian football in general, and Spartak really take advantage of it. The ability to give the youngsters a bench seat and just get experience and then potentially get them on the pitch as well. Um, Richard, have you got any final words on Spartak before we move on to, to Lokomotiv? Yeah, um, great win for Spartak that against Napoli. I, I was not expecting it. Um, fantastic to get um, six points out of six against Napoli. And, you know, a draw in the final game against Legia and they qualify. Um uh, for Europe after Christmas, I'm a little bit conflicted. Do I want them to drop into, to want them to carry on in the Europa League or drop into the Europa Conference League? Because obviously, the Europa League is going to be very tough from the knockout rounds onwards, especially when you see some of the sides who um, who are going to be in Europe after Christmas in the second tier competition. Um, I mean, the third tier competition. I think Spartak possibly could go on a little run in that, um, but but obviously, yeah, just to be in Europe post Christmas would be great, considering that group that they draw. That, that they were that they were given and um and yeah um if they win it if they win the final game and Napoli beat Leicester then that's probably the best case scenario for everybody because then they get they win the group and they get a buy into the round of 16 which for Russian clubs would be really ideal because if you think about it we've always said that when the European football comes back it's at the end of it's at the end of February and the sides are always finding it difficult to adapt back to regular first team competitive games because obviously they've had a long winter break Whereas the round of 16 of the Europa League after Christmas would be in the middle of March. So they would have had three, four RPL games plus a you know a Russian Cup match to ease themselves back in. So it actually could work to their advantage, could be fresh legs. So so yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed, actually probably is best for Napoli to win that game. Yeah, hopefully. David said when Hanu was going through all the potential permutations, uh, it also wouldn't be surprised me if Spartak did finish fourth, but hopefully they can get through because it seems like it's a bit of a tall order for Lokomotiv to get through to the any European games after Christmas. Now, they lost midweek 3-0 to Lazio. Uh, I'm going to quickly summarise the game myself, then I'll go back to you, Richard, for a quick opinion. But we're not going to spend too long on Lokomotiv, as we will be spending longer later on in the pod regarding Ralph Rangnick. But uh, yeah, first, first half was decent from Loco, obviously playing a vastly superior side that they just lost against in a what's been a pretty poor overall performance so far in the Champions League this year and then shot themselves in the foot. Chiro Mobile with a brace of penalties. Locomotive just fell apart at the back. Real poor defending. Really poor for the, for the second one if I remember rightly in particular and then were undone by a late Pedro goal for 3-0. Uh, as things stand, Loco are currently bottom of the group with no wins from five and only two points. But they could still make it to the Conference League irrespective of Galatasaray Lazio's results because their next game is against Marseille and that is a straight shootout for Conference League football. So even though Lokomotiv have been dreadful this <laughs> this European window, but they could still actually have football after Christmas in Europe, which is a little bit wild. Uh, Richard, you watched the game and you weren't really enthused looking at your comments in our chat. No, it was disappointing. I thought there was a moment just before half-time in the latter bits of the second half where they were coming into a little bit more but then the second half, yeah, they just they just fell apart. Um, Siljanov, I don't know what he was doing. It was always a risky challenge when in the box, when he slid in and took the Lazio player down. And, you know, the VAR, VAR review 
resulted in a penalty. And then I think after that moment, Locomotive just fell apart. You know, they gave away a second penalty. The second penalty was a 50-50 call, but it was it was given. Definitely, the first one was definitely a penalty. Um, but no complaints overall. I think Lazio just got hold of the game in the second half and proved that they are a much better side than Locomotive at the minute. You know, it was always going to be a tough ask for them to to beat Lazio, whether it's home or away, because they you know they're a very very good side with top players. Um, and the, cra- the crazy thing about it all is, is that yeah, as you were saying, James, that Locomotive still have a chance against Europe after Christmas. Um, <laughs> they have to. Um, they obviously have to beat Marseille away. It's a funny one though, because Marseille are one of those sides. They they tend to with such a degree of frequency. They they tend to switch between the brilliant and the and the shambolic, almost from match day to match day, from game to game. You know that you still won't write it off. I think it's unlikely because let's be honest, since Gisdol came in at Locomotive, I think, you know, it's been no improvement on Nikolic. I can probably count, you know, the improvement, the, the perform, the good displays by Locomotive on one hand since he come in, you know, probably the Galatasaray away draw and the home win against Sochi, but there's not really been a huge amount else, which has really got you out of your um, seat regarding Locomotive since Gisdol came in. So it would be nice to see them go through into the Conference League post-Christmas, but, Mm, I'm having my doubts because the game's away from home especially but we never know you just have to wait and see <laughs> yeah pretty poor away from home in Lokomotiv they've got a the a worse record than even Zenit and Spartak away from home um, we have covered it previously but I personally am not particularly optimistic about their chances but hey let's hope hope for the best I think the best performance in the group so far was the opening game against Marseille so Hopefully they can do that again. Now we'll move on from international uh, European football to international football for a quick segue. Uh, but the 2022 World Cup World Cup playoff draw took place on Friday afternoon, uh, the 26th of November. Now the draw was, of course, to determine the European playoffs for the World Cup. The playoffs will take place in March. The semi-finals on the 24th of March and the final on the 29th of March. So the draw was th- provided three pathways to the World Cup. Um, the six highest seed, se- uh, the six best ranked runners up from the group stages of the qualifying were allocated to pot one and thus were given a, a home semi final leg. And the remaining six teams were allocated to pot two. So Russia were seeded for the draw along with Italy, Portugal, Scotland, Sweden, and Wales. The non-seeded sides were Austria, Czech Republic, North Macedonia, Poland, Turkey, and Ukraine. So those were determined on a variety of factors, uh, and it turns out that... um, And then they had a second draw to decide which of the teams would play at home in the finals. And thus, path A is uh, Wales and Austria would play each other, and they will play the winners of Scotland, Ukraine. Path B, which is Russia's path, uh, Russia play Poland in the semi-final, and for the finals, will if they beat Poland, would play the winners of Sweden versus Czech Republic, and then Path C, Portugal, Turkey, and Italy, North Macedonia. Overall, I think a very respectable group and a respectable path for Russia to the finals. Uh, obviously, all are difficult games. None of the games at this stage are going to be easy, but crucially, have avoided. I mean, they avoided Ukraine because Russia and Ukraine weren't allowed to be drawn together for geopolitical re- political reasons. But crucially, have avoided Portugal and Italy, who were both in Path C. So only one of Portugal or Italy will make the World Cup finals in Qatar. David, do you want to give any quick analysis on that, or just it, it's very easy? I mean, they they avoided who they needed to avoid and have got respectable games. Yeah, it's uh, it's not the worst draw they could have got, and it's not the best draw they could have got. It's uh... You, you would take the draw. Um, you know, I think the game against Poland is just as difficult as the game that's, that will come afterwards against Sweden or the Czechs. Uh, you know, Poland are no mean feat. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but, you know, I, I would like to think winnable fixtures, especially at home. Um, and that, you know, if, if the right rush is turn up, obviously we talked about it before about Zuba, you know, should probably be in, in this squads for these games. Um, but yeah, yeah, um, certainly a draw that uh, gives Russia a, a good chance of making it. 
Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, and that's that's all they need to do is is get to get to the World Cup, and that's a success, be successful for for Russia. Um, finally, I mean, we we did just want that one as a quick segue just to update everybody. But the biggest story that happened midweek regarding Russian football is arguably the potential agreement for locomotive director of football, Ralph Rangnick, to be going to Manchester United. So this started earlier on in the week as just rumours and conjecture. And then I think it was The Athletic who were the first to have the exclusive and, and say that he will become their interim manager. And this was via David Ornstein on theathletic.com. Uh, he claims that Rangnick has agreed in principle with Manchester United to become their interim manager. Uh, they understand that the agreement is subject to Ragnick's current club, of course, Lokomotiv, agreeing to release him from his contract, although Manchester United do not anticipate this to be a problem. Ragnick has agreed a six-month month deal until the end of May and will have a further two years in a consultancy role. Now, he is awaiting a work permit, according to The Athletic. Uh, just today, the BBC Sports have claimed that the agreement have has been reached with Rangnick and it's a matter of time before he takes over as first interim manager and then secondly, a consultancy role. So before I ask yourselves your opinion on Rangnick's time in Locomotive and potential for Manchester United, I'll give a quick summary of Rangnick's time at Locomotive. So he initially, of course, started as a consultant for the club. Um, working very closely with the owners in future direction more so and just like a sick advisory role uh, he then was given the position of sporting director i think was the official term but all intents and purposes it is director of football uh, came in and upset and overhauled what was probably quite a well set squad granted it was an aging squad uh, had just lost one of its best compo- components in Lyosha Maranchuk, but then he splurged 30 million euros in the transfer market. I think it's quite fair to accept that players like Bekar Bekar, uh, Girano Kirk are, are, are good players. Bekar Bekar certainly has a, a, a very good future in front of him, but a lot of Lokomotiv fans questioned why they needed such an overhaul, uh, aside from bringing in some youth. Uh, he then had a falling out with Marco Nikolic. The two did not really meet eye to eye. Uh, Nikolic, midway through this season, changed from his favoured formation of what was a 4-4-D in diamond formation in midfield to the Ragnix tried and tested 4-2-2-2. Very high pressing, very narrow, but very attacking it did not work in the least. Nikolic got a, had a series of terrible results playing that, leading to lots of rumours and, and uh, accusations on VK and Twitter and Telegram that he was sabotaging him and wanting to replace the man. That did duly happen. He replaced him with Marcus Gisdol, who has worked with Ragnik in the past and has been kind of widely ridiculed after his appointment by those who know German football quite well, claiming that everywhere he'd been, he basically was the opposite of Midas, where everything he touched turned to shit. Um, Now he's leaving, having left potentially Thomas Zorn in charge, um, which is not really a good thing after what he did at Spartak. But in that time, just overhaul on the pitch, overhaul off the pitch. Locomotives, yes, the ages went down. Yes, they have some promising players, some promising signings like uh, Naya Teknizian, um, Konstantin Maradashvili, and then the aforementioned other players. But he's brought in around 10 staff members. It's just been a, a huge overhaul and very unstable time. Now, Igor Rabiner reports that Lars Kornetka, who is Ragnik's, Ragnik's consultancy partner, will become their new sporting director along working alongside Zone. So it seems as if the project isn't being abandoned for now, if Rank Rabiner is right, in which he more often is correct than not. But it's been not a great time for Locomotive. Uh, David, first, what? how do you take Ragnik's time at Loco? And it's really not went to plan or all the excitement that we all expected, has it? No, I mean, as... To put it in the simplest of terms, are Loco in a better or worse position having 
had rank pick at the club and you'd say they're in a worse position. Um, not even at a similar position. You, you'd say it's worse than where they were when he arrived. Um, yeah, I mean, transfers, a mixed bag. You know, Becker Becker definitely the highlight uh, has been has been really good. Maradishvili's becoming uh, quite good. Obviously, we all thought they overspent on Tignizian, um, which, you know, they probably did. Yedvai has been a solid starter. Uh, and then Kirk has sort of yet to, to prove himself uh, particularly up top. But, uh, you know, but then on the opposite side, obviously, they could probably get go uh, and the manager, and, you know, everything else. So, um, you know, in general... It's not going well. Results haven't changed. If anything, they've gotten worse. You know, there's all these rumours of discontent and forcing Nikolic to play certain players. Um, you know, it's not it's not the most uh, redeeming spell. And I think most most uh, United fans and a lot of British media are sort of just um, blissfully ignoring the fact that for the last six months he's been working on a project which has not done well at all. Um, I'm seeing very few mentions of the fact that uh, he's leaving Locomotive in a worse state than, he, than when he arrived. Granted, um, it's been six months and it's you know, he was brought in as a long-term project. And it's a shame that he would walk out on a project after such a short amount of time. But that's the risk I suppose you get with when you bring in a big name like him, that he's going to be in high demand. Um, and with this other guy... Um, you know, I'm sure Rangnick will always still have a, a slight hand in what, what happens at, at Loco with this guy in charge and the fact that it's sort of his, his consulting agency sort of looking after it. But, uh, yeah, it, it's not been the, the dream we were all hoping when Rangnick arrived. Um, I, think, I think the best thing to come out of it will be Becca Becca, who... As a young French midfielder, will have will have suitors in Europe. Uh, with the way he's playing, will definitely have suitors in Europe in the next year or two. And Loco, I'm sure, will make a, a nice profit on him based on how he's playing at the moment. Uh, but other than that, it's it's not been the best spell. No, not in the least. And David uh, Richard, sorry, Richard, how do you feel that he will get on at Manchester United? Obviously, they are an absolute basket case behind the scenes. There there are question marks over who's running the club, why Ed Woodward is still there and why he's extending his leaving date, um, what the Glazers' impetus is and input is, what they actually want from the club, apart from their signing off their weekly dividends. There's been a clamour from the fans for them to create a real footballing structure behind the scenes. There's question marks over who is in charge of the football because they seem to, none of which really know a direction of the club where to go in the long term and they're just passing from pillar to post between club legend to club legend or pass name manager to pass name manager to do what they want and then leave and leave them back at route one. And question marks over who's in charge. So what sort of remit do you think Ragnick would get and do you think he could be successful at Manchester United? I think the first thing to acknowledge here is is that this the first six months of Ranit's time at Manchester United obviously going to be as a, an interim coach. Now, obviously, what I think Manchester United have probably looked at, they've probably looked at it with Carrick and thought, is it a bit long to give Carrick an interim position for? That's probably that's probably why they were probably wanting, you know, all the talk when Solskjaer was sacked about there being an interim, interim, and then an interim manager, you know. So they probably were probably under the impression that giving Carrick six months is probably a bit much because it's his first job in football. He's not been retired too long a player. So I think, you know, I can understand why they were keen on bringing Ranyak in as, a, as, a, as an interim coach till the end of the season first up because he's got a lot of experience coaching, even though recently he's been, you know, doing more, you know, in director of football with consultancy roles rather than actual coaching. So I think to the end of the season, Ranić could do quite well as a interim coach at Manchester United. You know, I think the best they can probably hope for in the Premier League is the top four, and then maybe a cup run in the FA Cup, and possibly just about being competitive in the Champions League knockout rounds. If, if Ranić can do that, then it's a a salvage operation well done. If they finish top four and maybe win the FA Cup, 
possibly do okay in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. It's at the end of the season where I think the fireworks are really going to start with Ranić because he's obviously signed this two-year consultancy role at Manchester United after his interim manager, manager period ends. But the question you have to ask yourself is how much of a leash is Ranić going to get at Manchester United? You know, how much say is he going to have on transfer policy? Is it going to be just a purely advisory role or is he going to be more hands-on and want more control over specific signings at Manchester United. I know for you know I'm I'm tempted and intrigued to see just how much of a leash he's going to be given by the Glaciers um at the club because obviously, you know, it's Manchester United, as you were saying earlier, James, they've been a bit of a basket case club in terms of recruitment, in terms of management off the pitch, probably for the last two, three years. Well, probably arguably since Alex Ferguson left the club, it's been all a bit of a mismatch. But especially in the last two, three years when it comes to recruitment, they've seemed to have you know, really lost their way. So I think that's what's going to be the most fascinating thing of all. I think I understand why Ranić has gone to Manchester United because I guess the lure of coaching someone, a team as big as that, you know, Ranić is, I think, in his early 60s now, so it probably wasn't going to come. I, it is a little bit disappointing that he is leaving Lokomotiv, but ultimately, yeah, it's not worked out here at the club quite the way they would have imagined when he came. But, you know, I can understand why when a club like Man United come call and it is difficult to refuse it, especially at Ranić's age now. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, I think as a short-term caretaker option, as I mentioned earlier, caretaker manager option to the end of the season, potentially it could work out for them, but it'll be fascinating to see what happens at the end of the season in how much, how deep this consultancy role at Man United is and how much of a leash, you know, he's going to be, how much control he's going to be given by the Glaciers. And, you know, it's going to be fascinating to, to see what happens. So, but yeah, it's it's all a bit uh, frustratingly unfortunate for Lokomotiv because, you know, they were building something last couple of seasons and now you think they've just gone back a little bit backwards, really, which is a bit of a shame because they're probably not going to qualify for Europe next season. They still might, but not going to not gonna be in the Champions League or Europa League. It's probably going to be Conference League at best. So, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's going to be a fascinating state of um, developments over the next um couple of months and years at Manchester United for Ranić and what, what local do now will be equally fascinating as well. Yeah, and just to bring it back round to local to finish off, uh, we did mention that we would mention, uh, discuss their game midweek and it's it was just more of the same from what I've seen from Gizdol so far. If you, if you look at Gizdol's results, I think he's defeated un, un, uh, as manager, they've defeated Nizhny and Sochi. Drew with Spartak, drew with Galatasaray, lost against Lazio, lost against Akhmat, and lost against Galatasaray as well. So it's it's really been a, a mixed bag at best, at very best, and that's being kind as well. And in the first half, they did defend quite resolutely. They did hold back Lazio, and this is a good Lazio side, and uh, they were playing really good football under Milizio Sarri. Their, uh, their aggressive pressure caused a lot of problems for Lazio. Their real high press, I thought it was really good in the first half. It wasn't ideal. Um, they did allow Lazio to progress behind them quite often. Uh, they're still working on that, and it is, of course, a long-term thing. But what it did allow quite often was Lokomotiv to steal the ball in Lazio's half. I think in the first half alone, they stole it like four or five times in Lazio's half. And that half was was absolutely perfect, really. Um Really high turnovers, real high pressure, very solid first half. Defence didn't have the greatest amount to do because their attack started from the top of the pitch. But then <clears throat> Sarri adjusted. Uh, he would he, he dropped Immobile deeper and pushed people in behind them. And basically what it did was it, it uh, overloaded in midfield and locomotives midfield couldn't handle that. And then Gisdol didn't know how to respond his initial plan was very bold. I really liked it. That's typical what you would see from a Rangnick team. But once Immobile would drop deeper, the midfield would push up. It would literally just be... I mean, Becca Bacar would, would likes to drift anyway. So it would just be Baranov surrounded by three, four Lazio players. And it was just far too much for, for them to handle. So Sarri changed the game with his tactical decision. And Gisdol didn't have a clue how to respond to that. Yes, Lazio are a far better team. And yes, the, 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 his own side are only learning the pressing system. It's very high energy, very intensive, and only really had enough to deal with Lazio for, what, 50, 60 minutes or so until they scored. But it's a little bit worrying that 
again, and this isn't the first time, it was the same in the Spartak game, that you can't change a game at all. I don't think Lokov came behind to win once or get anything from any games, just about apart from the two-all draw early in his reign against Lazio, I think it was. Um, very poor from the manager, but brave. I'll give him that, brave. <laughs> Richard, have you got any last thoughts on Lokomotiv and their game on Thursday? Yeah, it's more on Gistol, really. I'm just beginning to wonder with, um, obviously, it's all hypothetical now because Ranić has gone to Manchester United, but just wondering, would he have been better off just waiting till the end of the season and then making a decision on Nikolic then? Because when you think about it, obviously, getting a manager to move mid-season, because they were linked with a few names, weren't they? Lokomotiv, I noticed Robert Klaus of Nuremberg in the second Bundesliga was being linked. Um Obviously, he's already in a job at the moment and might not want to move mid-season. So I'm just beginning to wonder at the end of the season, would they have had more of a, you know, a, a better choice of manager to go for? Because obviously they had to approach because the light of work. You know, you've already seen with regards to Manchester United how difficult they found it to get people out of contracts. You know, they were being linked with um, Pochettino and uh, Rogers, weren't they? But obviously, both of them probably either unwilling to move right now or the clubs unwilling to release them. So yeah, I'm. When you're bringing in managers mid-season, you always normally have to go for someone out of work, and it's sometimes a little bit more complex. But yeah, it's it's, it's not been great on the Gisdol so far. I mean, I'm still willing to give him a little bit of time, but the early, let's just say, all the early warning signs we were given about Gisdol from people in the know about German football have sadly looked like they're coming true. Um, I hope he can turn it around, but I'm having my doubts, unfortunately. Yeah, likewise. I think Rangnick did brilliantly at former clubs, particularly, of course, everyone will remember his work at Leipzig as manager and then director and when he was in charge of Hasenhutl's side. Um, but I think there's too many Manchester United fans out there who are, and not just Manchester United fans, football fans in general, who may not support Man United, who are adjusting history to, and revising history to their own liking to try and push him further is a good a good option. They're ignoring what's went on at Lokomotiv in a club that's obviously nowhere near the size of Manchester United's success, or successful as Manchester United or just as a marketing giant as big as Manchester United. But also in a were in a far more stable place. They were quite settled, quite settled squad who played really well in Europe last season with a, a manager who came in and largely impressed the majority of fans and pundits alike. And he went in, tore that up, and basically they're in no far better position, far worse position since. But there's also been a lot of misnomers going around, and I think it was uh, Chris Williams, who was formerly of Football Grad, or well, the, the, their German website, I can't remember what it's called, and he um, he said that he's just breaking his Twitter hiatus to emphatically say that Jurgen Klopp did not get his love of hard pressing from Ralf Rangnick which he's read about 10 times this week, and that's everywhere. I think there was an article where it was like, he is the father, the doctor who's the father of German football. And it's like Wolfgang Frank, and Chris goes on to say that Wolfgang Frank was Klopp's mentor, who in turn was influenced by Arrigo Sacchi, just like Bielsa and pretty much most managers of the modern day. So um, just be careful with what you wish for, because I mean, he might go to Manchester United and be brilliant. Some people just don't work out at certain clubs, and then they find the one who does fit, and it's great. But I think Manchester United's problems are far more than just getting in Ragnick as an interim coach on a consultancy basis. It's uh, a lot goes a lot deeper than that and rises far for, far higher to the top. But <clears throat> anyway, that's everything on Lokomotiv and Ragnick for this week, and thus is the end of this week's pod. Uh, as at the time of recording, it is currently Ural one Sochi one. Uh, it was uh, Rafael Augustiniak with the opening goal in the first half and Christian Aboas literally just like three minutes ago got on my second screen. Uh, equalised with a nice assist from Sergei Tarakov. Uh, elsewhere this weekend, Akhmat Rostov, Himki Krasnodar, Nizhny Krilia, Rubin Dinamo, Siska Zenit, Ufa Spartak as uh, Ufa once again try and get one over on Spartak as their resident bogey team, of course, with Shamil Kazizov back in Ufa now and Arsenal Lokomotiv, the last game of the weekend. We'll be back at the usual time next week, uh, which is actually going to be a weekend one. We're shifting to a weekend podcast, so we'll try and get more uh, football chat than we did this week, as opposed to more topical and generic and the European stuff. Um, but 
just for everyone to know going forward, we're shifting two weekends due to some scheduling conflicts and other things that are just occurring towards the end of the year. This has been the Russian Football News Podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет